The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff. I'm an MDiv student here at the seminary under care of Calvary Presbytery of the PCA. I'm also Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the seminary, and I have the distinct pleasure this week of being in my last winter intensive class, Reformed Pastor with Dr. Ian Hamilton, and it is Dr. Hamilton that I have the, the pleasure of welcoming into the studio today. Dr. Hamilton, thank you for joining me. It's my pleasure, Zach. Thank you. Dr. Hamilton is an adjunct professor of applied theology here at Greenville Seminary, and he also serves on the Board of Trustees for the seminary and the Board of Trustees of the Banner of Truth Trust. He is an ordained minister in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church in England and Wales, and also ministered in the Church of Scotland. He has supplied pulpits in the PCA, and he is a frequent guest of PCA, OPC, and other churches here in the States. Dr. Hamilton and I are going to speak about, you guessed it, the class that I'm taking this week under his tutelage. It is is called Reformed Pastor. The aims of the class are particularly to uh, give a, a perspective from a pastor speaking to aspiring pastors what it is that the Reformed Pastor uh, does in the ministry, why, and also some of the some of the foundational principles um, that that govern and inform his practice as a pastor. And Dr. Hamilton, I want to get us kicked off on this on this short, casual kind of reflection on the course with a very basic question, and that is, what is the primary or principal role or responsibility, job, of the Reformed pastor? I understand the Reformed pastor to be a man who is to exemplify in his life, in his marriage, if he is married, and in his relationships within the congregation, uh, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is to preach the word in season and out of season. He is to proclaim the whole counsel of God, but he is to do so as a man whose life has been mastered by the word of God, transformed by the grace of God, and in whose life people can see as well as hear that the God of the Bible is a God who is rich in mercy, slow to anger, abounding in covenant love, who does by no means clear the guilty, absolutely, but who comes to his people in grace and in truth. When we consider that the Reformed pastor is called to come to his people with grace and in truth, um, speaking as a man mastered by the Word of God, how does this distinguish him from any other kind of Christian pastor, or does it? No, it shouldn't. Uh, it shouldn't distinguish him, actually, from any Christian, except in degree, certainly not in quality. A, a Christian pastor and a Reformed pastor is an expression of a Christian pastor, is to be what a Christian should be, but to be so in a very public, um, set-apart, ordained way. Uh, a Reformed pastor will be characterized in a distinctive way, I believe, by uh, an absolute uh, submission to the gracious sovereignty of God. There will be a deep sense of an indebtedness to the Catholicity of the faith, 
that the reformers sought to express in their teaching. So a reformed pastor is not a different kind of genus, different kind of man uh, from an evangelical pastor in general, but he is a man who is distinctively shaped in his spirituality and in his ministry, I suppose principally by the five great solas of the Reformation, or to be precise, three solas, a soli and a solus. <laughs> um, but also overarching all of that by the conviction that the calling of the Christian pastor is to glory in the triune God. And so, yes, the reformed pastor will proclaim reformed truths recovered for the church at the Reformation, but he will help his congregation to understand that those reformed truths are embedded in the grace and glory of the triune God. Even as we consider that the Reformed pastor is in many respects uh, a sheep before he's a shepherd, he's a Christian before he's a pastor, and shares more in common with, uh, with those who are called sons of God and yet not called to the ministry, then he doesn't share in common with them or that he has uh, held in distinction from them. What, what qualities, or what qualifies, rather, I should say, what qualifies a man for the ministry, and can anyone uh, take it upon himself to appoint himself a pastor? Well, let me take the second first. Absolutely not. Um, a pastor is someone who absolutely has a deep, ingenerated sense that God has called them to the work of shepherding the flock. But that internal call needs to be tested by the church beyond the individual. We can be self-deceived. We can think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Uh, and we need the validation, the certification, the, the authentication of the church beyond ourselves to confirm that what we internally believe to be true, the church externally recognizes to be true. And in terms of qualifications, I, I have always thought that, that the first primary qualification for anyone uh, is that a, a deep sense of uh, woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. There are many things I could do there are even some things I could do by the grace of God well, but there is only one thing under heaven that my heart lies to do. But allied to that, there is at the same time a deep sense of who is sufficient for these things. I think any young man who has a God-given call to the Christian ministry um, will inevitably confess, uh, Lord, how can I, being who I am, begin to begin to consider such a calling? And then we become aware that my grace is made perfect in weakness, that the Lord God promises to sustain us and enable us in the midst of our weakness to rise up to the calling that he has called us to in Jesus Christ. Throughout the week, you've very helpfully introduced us to some men that 
we may already be familiar with as students of theology and students of the Bible, but maybe we haven't been quite as acquainted with as aspiring pastors. Uh, These have been models for ministry that you've set before us for our consideration and, and even to some degree for our emulation. Um, we've talked about John Calvin, John Owen, Richard Baxter quite a bit. Um, we've talked about some men who are very influential in your own life, tw- more 20th century figures, I suppose we could call them. Um, you've drawn from your own experience, and this afternoon we'll be speaking a bit about Samuel Rutherford and the pastoral care particularly reflected in his letters. Honing in on, on one of these men, let's look at John Owen as a, as a Reformed pastor. How, how does this Reformed pastor from history inform our pastoral practice today. Some years ago, when I was ministering in Cambridge in England, uh, one of our church members, uh, a bright uh, doctoral student, asked me a question after an evening service. She said, Ian, what is it you like so much about John Owen? And almost without thinking, I replied, he takes me into another world. John Owen, before anything else, like John Calvin uh, before him, was a pastor. He sought to be a better theologian that he might become a better pastor. And what John Owen does in a remarkable way is to open up the riches of the gospel. When I read Owen, I I read a man who not only has a profound sense of who God is, but who has a deep sense of the multifacetedness of the human heart. When I first read John Owen, I remember on a bus traveling to an inter-varsity student conference, I thought, this man knows my heart. And as a Reformed pastor, he He's helped me to understand that we must minister into the hearts of men and women, but to do so not in an inquisitorial way, but above all by setting before them the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And this, I think, is one of Owen's tremendous um, contributions to Christian theology in general, to the Christian church in particular, and to Christian pastors as they seek to minister into the lives of their congregations, that John Owen understood that the great application that the hearts of men and women need is to have set before them the glory and the grace of God in Jesus Christ. There are some passages in in volume one of Owen's um, collected works, the 16 volumes, uh, that are deeply moving. And you realize as you read them, I want to be better than I am. I want to live to the praise and glory of God. I want to have done with sin. And what he's done is not to call you to have done with sin. He's called you to consider Jesus Christ. And he sees and understands that Jesus Christ, as he is set before us in the word of God, is himself the great application of the gospel. Now, that doesn't stop Owen from probing into the human heart and uh, his, his work on mortification that perhaps many know and spiritual mindedness in volume seven. Um, they are deeply uncomfortable works, but you never, ever think 
as you read them, that they are divorced from the soil out of which they have arisen, the soil of the revelation of the grace and glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And it's that atmosphere that I think should and must pervade the ministry of anyone who is a Reformed pastor. As we consider Jesus Christ as the object of our worship, as even um, the glory of Christ being the ends to which we as Reformed pastors are directing men and women under our pastoral care, what kind of example does Christ give us uh, that would inform our pastoral ministry today? In our Lord Jesus Christ, we see someone who comes into the world uh, in obedience to God. The great overarching rubric of his life is that he is a man living under the word of God. He is a man quickened and enabled by the spirit of God. He is a dependent man. The first servant song, Isaiah 42, pictures uh, God's servant as one who is upheld by God and who ministers in dependence on God with the enabling ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that's where um, pastoral ministry should always begin. Christ is the model of the obedient man, the spirit-dependent man. But then that first servant song goes on to show us how he will faithfully and unyieldingly pursue the ministry entrusted to him uh, three times, uh, I think, uh, twice in verse 2 and once again in verse 4 of Isaiah 42, we're told that he will faithfully bring forth justice. Nothing will deflect him or deter him or divert him. Uh, his, his whole ministry will be characterized by unyielding faithfulness. But then allied to that, and it's quite remarkable that this is what the first servant song wants us to see, that he is someone who is gentle and unthreatening, who doesn't break a bruised reed, who doesn't snuff out uh, a smouldering wick, uh, a seemingly useless uh, wick. He is someone who is patient and forbearing and, and long-suffering and gentle and tender with the people to whom he ministers. But also, we see in our Lord Jesus Christ that while he is, he is essentially gentle and patient and forbearing uh, towards his people, he can be as bold as a lion towards the enemies of the gospel. He can speak with unfettered boldness against the religious hypocrites, whitewashed sepulchres, he calls them, blind leaders of the blind. Um, and his whole example is uh, an example of someone who, on the one hand, is living out his life and exercising his ministry to the praise and glory of God, but who is no less allied to that, seeking the good and the well-being and the health and the blessedness of the people of God and telling us and showing us by his powerful, bold, courageous, unflinching statements against the enemies of the gospel that the people of God must be guarded from error, intellectual error, theological error, error, emotional error, and 
he is set before us as the great chief shepherd of the flock. And he is therefore the prototypical um, reformed pastor, if you like, that we are called to emulate or at least to have as our principal pattern as we seek to live out our calling as men called of God to preach the word. There was a very interesting line. Uh, I believe I read it in Calvin's letters. You had us read some of his letters uh, and to reflect upon them in class, where Calvin said in Geneva of his day, and we know that the role of the pastor, at least in Calvin's life, seems to have been so much more expansive than what is a lot of many men uh, in our own day in terms of speaking into government affairs and, and, and different things of that nature. But he said, the people are more willing or more easily to see me as a preacher and not as a pastor. Something of of that variety, I'm paraphrasing here, the people are more willing to regard me as a preacher than as a pastor. Tease out for us a dynamic between these complementary roles and the danger that we can have even in our own calls and how we conduct ourselves to showing people that we're preachers but not pastors. How, how, do, how do we guard against that? How do we foster a, a, a fuller, uh, more biblical understanding of our calling for the people under our care? In his commentary on Acts 20, verse 20, um, where Luke tells us that the Apostle Paul um, spoke publicly and from house to house, uh, Calvin has an extended exposition where he, on the one hand, uh, excoriates uh, church members who resist and refuse to have their ministers visit them in their homes. He calls them worse than bears who will not have their ministers in their homes to encourage them, reprove them, uh, strengthen them. But then he turns the tables on the pastors and says those pastors are no less worse than bears, if they do not give themselves to properly shepherding the flock. And for Calvin, that meant not simply exercising a pulpit ministry, but visiting people to see the fruit of that pulpit ministry take root in their lives. And for Calvin, it was unimaginable, inconceivable, that a man could be a preacher without being a shepherd who cared for and, and sought to visit the flock of God under his care. Calvin had a, a biblical, a richly biblical uh, understanding of Christian ministry that meant that the men who were called to it would be men who would not only be gifted in terms of their ability to expound the word, and apply that word into the lives of the people, but who saw their ministry as extending into the care of individuals and families in their homes. And like Richard Baxter uh, a century later, uh, Calvin certainly would have said that the fruit of the word can more often be enriched and encouraged and deepened by personal family visitation 
than simply through the pulpit ministry of the word. And if someone were to say to Calvin, I think this would be the case, uh, God has called me to preach the word, but I'm not really suited or fitted or equipped to visit the people and be a shepherd to the people, I think Calvin would have said, well, you are self-deceived. God has not called you to be a minister of the word because the two belong together. The shepherding of the flock involves the care of the flock and not simply the, the ministration of the word to the flock. Moving now a little bit out of historical examples and models for ministry and talking about some really uh, contemporary troubles, or or not so much troubles, but considerations that we must have as we pursue the ministry or enter into it or even uh, persevere in it after many years. There are many listeners, I'm sure, who are tuning in now who are considering going into ministry, maybe weighing seminary options or preparing to approach their pastor or their elders with this inward sense of call. What would you say to these men who are now making preparations to prepare, beginning to begin to enter into a lifetime of, of pastoral ministry and service to the king? The first thing I probably would say would be cultivate the art of reading well. Uh, build into your life the great treasures of the church throughout history. Acquaint yourself with the significant pastors that God has raised up to bless his church, um, whether it's John Chrysostom at the end of the 4th, beginning of the 5th century, um, whether it's uh, Anselm of Canterbury, uh, who wrote Cur Deus Homo, why, why did God become man as, as a pastor, as an archbishop in Canterbury in England? Uh, whether it's the Institutes of John Calvin, um, the writings of Richard Baxter or Jonathan Edwards or Martin Lloyd-Jones near our own time or R.C. Sproul. Um, grapple with and dig your life into these great treasures. Perhaps take one. Uh, I think it's John Piper who, who was encouraged in his very early days to, to take one theologian, and he's taken Jonathan Edwards. For me, uh, my first encounter was with John Calvin. I, I don't know Calvin uh, as well, remotely as well as, as I should, but uh, Calvin for me has been uh, an exemplar. The second thing I would say is that give very, very careful thought to where you go to seminary. Don't simply go to where you will be most intellectually stretched, although I believe seminarians should be stretched to the uttermost intellectually. Go to a seminary where men are teaching who are proven pastors, who exemplify in their lives faithfulness, grace, um, gentleness allied to courage and boldness. What we see in the men who will teach us will as much influence us, whether we think it or not at the time, by what they actually say to us. That's why there is so much stress in the scriptures. 
especially in Paul's letters, that um, elders and teachers should have a particular kind of character. And I, I personally, and I, I don't mean to be offensive to anyone, I personally have never understood how, how men can teach effectively and prepare men for ministry meaningfully who themselves have never been pastors and teachers. Now, someone may say, ah, well, uh, Benjamin Warfield wasn't a pastor. And my response would be, well, you're not Benjamin Warfield. There are always exceptions that prove the rule. But the church needs, and that's what Calvin was. Calvin was a pastor. And when you read the institutes or his, some of his treatises or whatever, you never forget that he is a pastor. And the same with John Owen. They were pastors who became theologians in order to be better pastors. And I think for a young man, uh, thinking ahead, preparing for seminary, needs in conjunction with the elders of his congregation, and if he's in a Presbyterian church, perhaps with the oversight of the, the presbytery committee, appropriate and appointed to do that, to search out a seminary that will best prepare him, not simply intellectually, but spiritually and emotionally for the great work of the Christian ministry. My last question to you, and we can deal with it as as briefly as you'd like, or go in, in as deep as you'd like, is what are some of the most pointed challenges or difficulties facing men in the ministry today? In your estimation and in your experience as a good presbyter and a, an experienced pastor, what are some of the perhaps unique, perhaps not unique, acute challenges facing uh, Christian ministers, Reformed pastors in our own day? Well, let me focus on one, because I think it's perennial. I don't think it's novel to this age or this generation, but has been a pervasive reality throughout the ages of the church. And that is the danger or the temptation of devising and constructing our ministry more concerned to be acquainted with the culture of the day than with the enduring truth of God's word. Now, let me explain myself. I don't mean that we are to preach um, into uh, the church of Jesus Christ oblivious of the culture of the day. I do not mean that. We need to understand the times in which we live. But we need to realize that the gospel is natively relevant. We don't need to make it relevant. It is essentially by what it is and by who it is about. It is natively relevant. And our great need is not to be so culturally hip and cool that people think, oh, this, this is relevant for me. People need to hear us in a living, passionate spirit-dependent way, so proclaim the abiding relevance of the God who is, uh, exposing the, uh, the abiding reality of human nature as it is, that people see this, this is speaking to me where I am, whatever their cultural background. And I think today when I look around, 
I, I'm thankful that, that, that men are seeking to be relevant, and that's great, and I have much to learn from that. But I think there is always a danger that we confuse what relevance actually is. You, you don't need to make the gospel relevant. You don't need to be hip and cool. But you do need to show people that what you are saying to them is life and death, and that it addresses them exactly where they are, that the gospel is natively the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And so I would appeal to, to younger men to resist the temptation to be so culturally saturated that actually people are not hearing uh, the abiding relevance of what the gospel natively is. What you were saying there about relevance and about what what we ought to be striking for in our own ministries reminded me of of some difficult words that Christ shares in uh, in chapter eleven of Matthew's gospel, chapter eleven. Starting at verse 7, as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. And he goes on in that vein. And, and, you know, our role, I think, as pastors is to point people to Christ. And in that respect, very similar to John the Baptist, Mm -hmm. always saying, you must increase to the Lord. I must decrease, Lord. And so many men today, it seems out of a fear of man and out of a pragmatic desire and maybe even good intentions to win people to Christ, win people to the kingdom and to build the church, um, seek to be fashionable, to wear soft clothing, um, seek to be like Hollywood stars rather than like uh, biblically relevant uh, men committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the propagation of the truth and the restoration of right relationship between man and God. Dr. Hamilton, I'm so glad that you've joined me for this short time in between our morning and afternoon sessions. I hope this was a benefit to our listeners. If you're interested in more information about Greenville Seminary, please visit gpts.edu. There is a page uh, with uh, Dr. Hamilton's um, an abridged version of his curriculum vitae. If you want to look at some of his books that are available, we also have some in our bookstore. And if you're interested in joining us, maybe you're a pastor right now or a student at another seminary, and you would love to audit this class in the future. This is a course that regularly recurs each January, and I invite you to contact me, zgroff at gpts.edu, for more information about how to benefit from some of the instruction that our students receive here from Dr. Hamilton and the other faculty adjunct and resident that we have the privilege of welcoming to the seminary. Again, Dr. Hamilton, thank you so much for joining me. It's my great pleasure, Zach. Thank you for the invitation. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.